Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Ask any journalist in Brussels what happened, say, a week ago. They probably won't remember. Ask them what they were doing a month ago. <laughs> Not a chance. Ask them what happened one year ago on the 9th of December 2022. They all know. News broke of an alleged scandal in the European Parliament, unlike anything any of us had ever heard. On a cold and foggy Friday morning last December, Belgian police raided several homes and offices across Brussels. They seized computers, smartphones, and bags of cash. And they arrested several key suspects. They were people linked to the European Parliament. As their names trickled out, the gravity of the scandal grew. At first, it was a former MEP and an assistant. And then later, we learned that a vice president of the European Parliament, Eva Kaili, was also among those detained. They were all suspected of accepting large sums of money in exchange for, basically, doing a pay-to-play PR job on behalf of Qatar. And now we know it wasn't just Qatar. Morocco and Mauritania were also allegedly involved, although all those countries deny the charges and any involvement. Former MEP Antonio Panzeri has agreed to work with authorities in exchange for a reduced sentence. Belgian authorities have arrested the MEP Mark Tarabella in connection with the Qatargate scandal. Eva Kaili, the former vice president of the European Parliament involved in a corruption scandal, is finally out of prison. Thank you. My daughter is waiting for me, so I'm very happy that I will be with her in a bit. The attorneys alleged that the former parliament vice president was illegally investigated by the Belgian police and secret services since she still, as an MEP, retained parliamentary immunity. So a year after the story broke, where do we stand? I'm Sarah Wheaton, Politico's chief policy correspondent and your new host of EU Confidential. For me, well, the mere mention of Qatargate practically triggers PTSD flashbacks. We heard that the police were raiding offices in the European Parliament during Politico's annual staff party. So I put down my glass and grabbed a taxi to try to get a look for myself. Wouldn't you know it, a press badge isn't good enough to get you access to the seat of European democracy at 9 p.m. on a Friday. I hardly slept that night and barely stopped working for the next 48 hours. So this episode will be something of a group therapy session with my colleagues who spent countless hours poring over hundreds of leaked police files, trying to uncover the full extent of the bribery scandal. They'll bring us up to date with what they've found. Later, we'll discuss a rare political event, the EU-China summit in Beijing, 
where Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel sat face-to-face with China's President Xi Jinping for the first time. The EU's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, was also there. Did the summit ever have a chance of being a success? But first, it's Qatargate. Let's welcome Eddie Wax, our politics reporter covering the European Parliament. Hey, Eddie. Hi, Sarah. And Brussels correspondent, Elisa Braun. Hi, Sarah. And so you, along with Jan Volpicelli and some other colleagues, are working on this huge investigative series called The Qatargate Files, and people can follow that on our website. A few minutes ago, we heard some names from news reports about the case. Eddie, really quickly, can you just walk us through some of the main characters here? Yes, so we have um, three current MEPs who are facing preliminary charges for corruption, money laundering, and uh, participating in a criminal organization. They are the former vice president of the parliament, Eva Kiley, um, Mark Tarabella, who was mentioned um, just a few moments ago, and also Andrea Cozzolino, and then also a former MEP, Pierre Antonio Panzeri, who is uh, also charged. And then uh, we also have at least one couple involved. Eva Kiley's partner as well is also, is also a key player here, right? Exactly. So Francesco Giorgi was the former assistant to Panzeri. Then after 2019, he became the assistant to Cozzolino. And yes, he is the, the partner of Eva Kiley and they have a, a child together. Eddie, you know, I remember the Saturday morning after the news broke, you were staking out one of the NGOs implicated in this case and you were supposed to go on vacation. Um, after following all the ins and outs of this case all year, what's your biggest takeaway from this trove of documents? Well, from this amazing, rich resource that we've managed to clap our eyes on, thanks to Elisa, I think, you know, there are a few things that stick out to me. First of all, the investigation feels a little bit bogged down. It's been a year and there haven't been any actual new developments in terms of new arrests for months now. But looking at the documents, I mean, what's striking to me is just how long this alleged corruption ring actually went on for. It's a period that spans four years. So when the cops swooped in in December 2022, that was four years after these activities allegedly started all the way in 2018, which was an entirely old parliamentary term. The other thing that strikes me is just how you start to think a little bit like an investigator when you're looking at so many documents from a criminal investigation. You know, you start to see conspiracies everywhere, but at the same time, you really see how difficult it is to make two and two match up. And just because this person's mentioning someone else doesn't mean that that other person is aware of what the first person said. And all these sorts of things, reality sort of starts to dissolve in a certain way. And Elisa, one of these documents that you've managed to get your hands on is an Excel spreadsheet that is trying to make all sorts of links. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so this document is actually fascinating because Francesco Giorgi, the parliamentary assistant, actually listed all alleged attempts to influence the parliament while also acknowledging that at some point they were sort of exaggerating and then some of the actions listed were actually not within their power. Anyway, this document is very interesting because it shows an intent, I would say, And that intent is allegedly the intent of Qatar or Morocco or Mauritania to influence the parliament. What we can see in this document actually matches other reporting or also public declarations from these states. When you see, for instance, stuff related to resolutions against Algeria that were allegedly sold to Morocco, then... It's easy to understand why this will happen since Morocco has been in conflict with Algeria about the disputed territory of Western Sahara. 
Reading your article about that uh, made me chuckle because I cover lobbying in my day job and lobbyists love to kind of present themselves to potential clients as, as you know, being these master manipulators. But as you point out, it's unclear if uh, Georgie was actually the one responsible for some of the accomplishments that he claimed to have achieved for his alleged, quote unquote, clients here. We call this case Qatargate. The story broke during the World Cup in Qatar. The Gulf state had really been working hard to improve its reputation abroad as far as workers' rights. And a lot of the allegations involve efforts to maybe get positive statements about Qatar in the European Parliament, get visa-free access to the EU for its citizens. But back to you, Elisa. There's sort of an argument that Qatargate might be kind of a misnomer or only tells part of the story, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the findings into this trove of documents. If you look at the first reports about the investigation, they actually come from the Belgian Secret Services, who received an initial tip-off from a, an ally Secret Service in Europe, alleging that MEP Andrea Cozzolino met with the head of the Moroccan Secret Services, Yassine Mansouri, and that's why uh, the Belgian Secret Services started investigating uh, Cozzolino's connections to Panzeri and also to a Moroccan ambassador. And while they were investigating Morocco, that's when they found out that they were actually also working supposedly for Qatar. And let's not forget the third country that's allegedly meant to have been paying off MEPs and people with sort of influence in the European Parliament. And that's Mauritania, this uh, West African country that, you know, you don't really hear a lot about in Brussels. There wasn't a World Cup going on in Mauritania. But allegedly, this country gave huge amount of money to the people who are suspected of bribery in this case. So you've got this trove of documents. Politico has been reporting on this all year. Eddie, can you talk a little bit about your process for reporting on this story? Yeah, so you mentioned that, you know, on December the 10th last year, we were already kind of on the scene. And actually the night before, I remember you, Sarah, were trying to make calls and even trying to access the European Parliament at night. And actually, I think the police wouldn't let you in or the security guards wouldn't let you in. So just to show that we have, and I think our reporting clearly shows that, that we have absolutely been there day in, day out, physically and, you know, in the office, reporting every single twist and turn of this case. And there have been a huge amount of twists and turns, conflicts of interest, allegations involving the judge leading the inquiry who had to recuse himself. Uh, we've had more arrests. We've had offices being raided. We've had, you know, it stretching from to Estonia, to Rome, to potentially to other parts of the world. So we've, we've been trying our best and we think we've been managing it to really be kind of the leading publication on this. And we've made it a sort of editorial priority. And then, you know, with this latest massive trove of documents that we've managed to see, I think I'll hand over to Elisa to talk about our kind of over the last three weeks, you know, what we've been doing in the office. So getting access to a huge trove of documents is obviously really exciting at first, but then quite damaging in terms of uh, hours that you invest in reading them. Thanks to my colleagues, uh, Eddie and Jan, we sort of shared the work in terms of understanding what were the key findings and making sure that all our reporting is accurate. We've put in a huge timeline of events related to the case. This is a very important process because obviously there are a lot of legal risks attached to that project. We've already received threats of getting sued while trying to understand what had happened because obviously that's also part of Politico's work to reach out to the key players and give them a chance to explain to us what happened because there are what some of our sources say, be it in documents or also in conversation. But then obviously it's just one part of the story and this is a huge 
huge puzzle. And so, as you can imagine, it requires a lot of time and organization. And indeed, you know, it's easy when when we have these sort of dramatic things like the police finding bags of cash. Ava Kiley's father was arrested with a suitcase full of cash at a Brussels European Quarter Hotel shortly after the news first broke. So it's easy to just sort of assume that this is all a fait accompli and that these people are guilty. But in fact, these are merely allegations, right? Exactly. There are currently four MEPs and ex-MEP under preliminary charges, but the police investigation is not wrapped up yet. Actually, it's even been kind of suspended in a way because there is an internal investigation into the so-called Cuttergate investigation because defense lawyers suspect that the police did not respect certain laws during their investigation, including the parliamentary immunity. And that is a big question. We will get an answer on that next year. And only after that, and after the investigation is wrapped up, the investigative judge will be able to wait for a final trial and the prosecutor will put charges. But the problem is that the European Court of Human Rights has found Belgium guilty of lengthy delays in terms of judiciary issues. So some people suspect that we will only get a final trial in six to seven years, but only if the whole case doesn't explode in the meantime. So that remains quite uncertain. Okay, so of course we've been talking about the case against the particular individuals involved, but this scandal implicated the entire European Parliament, arguably all of the European institutions. Parliament leadership must really be feeling the heat from this particular investigation. Eddie, what's the reaction been? I think it was natural that they were probably bracing themselves around the December the 9th kind of anniversary, the one year anniversary of this scandal exploding. I'm sure, you know, they were expecting there to be lots of articles. Maybe they didn't think that there would be lots of new allegations and new pieces of the puzzle that, you know, we would be bringing out around this time. But, you know, the actual response to the Qatargate files that we have been publishing every day this week has been rather muted when you look at the actual parliament. And I think that's not surprising that people in the S&D group, the socialists and Democrats in the centre-left, you know, it's predominantly them who have been kind of involved and implicated in in this scandal. So it's not surprising they've kept a bit quiet. The EPP, the centre-right, you know, they don't want to be the, the kind of extremist voices always attacking the socialists over this because they have to kind of work together. It's a very compromise based system. So I think what you're left with is people on the extremes who are kind of using this as kind of rocket fuel for their own anti-EU agendas, which I suppose is rather unfortunate when all we're doing is, you know, trying to do good journalism. But that means that Qatargate is left as a bit of an open wound that is constantly going to be there. And the parliament has done its own uh, work and it's tried to do its own reforms. But what they haven't done is their own real thorough investigation into what happened. And until that happens, because they're saying they need to wait until the Belgians wrap it up, And as Elisa was saying, that's taking a long time. You and I, Sarah, this year uh, have worked together quite a lot, looking at how the parliament itself has tried to reform and try to kind of politically put this behind them. What do you think about the parliament's response? Was it strong enough? We were certainly expecting a strong response because parliament president Roberta Mazzola came out and said, democracy is under attack. Make no mistake, the European parliament, dear colleagues, is under attack. European democracy is under attack. And our way of open, free, democratic societies are under attack. 
the response from some was, well, you know, yeah, you had these, you know, outside players trying to influence the parliament, but MEPs showed that they were also susceptible and allegedly open to this sort of outside influence. And so she embarked on a sort of mission to try to show that the parliament was ready to change. She put out a 14-point plan that involved increasing transparency of who MEPs were meeting with. We also saw MEPs having to now disclose more information about their outside income. But other big reforms that people said were really necessary, like whistleblower reforms that would allow maybe some of these parliamentary assistants who observe this sort of thing. Basically, they say they continue to not really feel safe revealing things about their bosses. So it's very much a mixed bag at best. But the big question that we all have is whether this will actually matter in the European Parliament elections. Eddie mentioned that you know, the far right is trying to use this to argue that Brussels is just a corrupt place. Lisa, Eddie and I have both been in the Brussels bubble the entire time with this scandal, but you at least had a little bit of an outside perspective being in Paris. How do you see the view of the Brussels institutions having been affected by this? I think that obviously this scandal didn't help in terms of uh, polishing the image of the European Parliament. There were already doubts that some MEPs might have worked for other interests than those of the people who voted for them because we've had several scandals in France regarding fake parliamentary assistance. But in the end, I think that French people are interested in this scandal. Like I often talk about it with sources who ask me, like, where is this case going? Will we ever see any results? Do you think this will happen again? So I still believe that this case is uh, getting traction because there are so many important questions behind it. I mean, we may not ever have a final say about whether or not some of the people involved were corrupted. But I think that, as Eddie said, it's still an open wound questioning what we want from our institutions and what is the ethical framework that we require from the people we vote for. So that's why I think this case is fascinating. Eddie and Elisa, you have been trapped pretty much in a bunker. We've created a bunker in the newsroom for you to do this work this week. And we convinced your jailers to let you out for a few minutes to do this recording. But now we have to send you back in. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) So Godspeed to both of you. Thank you. Bye. After a short break, we bring you news from Beijing, where the Chinese president met with top EU officials. The agenda was intense. Trade imbalance, China's reluctance to engage on global issues like Russia's war on Ukraine and the fight against climate change and human rights abuses. We'll get into all these. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. 
Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Joining me now is Politico's Editor-in-Chief, Jamil Anderlini, my boss, who has lived and worked in China in his previous journalistic incarnations. Hi, Jamil. Hi, sir. We also have Abigail Vassalier of the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. Hi, Abigail. Hi, Sarah. You're joining us from sunny India. We're very jealous. And Abigail, I know you had a chance to watch the press conference from the summit. So how did EU leaders do ahead of this summit? Look, I think they delivered on their promises in a way. They entered into the summit with limited expectations and they delivered limited results. And I think by summit standards, this is a success. Can you tell us, you know, what was successful? I think what was successful was exactly this. First, entering the summit with having the Chinese charm offensive coming at you very hard and opening so much space without a real offer. But still, the Chinese wanted the summit to go well and the leaders did not bend on this and did not say, OK, we are going to give China a feel-good moment. And that, in my view, was the first uh, benchmark of success. The second the second one was the fact that this summit was prepared through different high-level dialogues throughout which they basically uh, came up with some low-hanging fruits that are still important. And I think to be able to show that the EU has the capacity to make some gains and some progress on certain issues, which are far away from being structural issues in the EU-China relationship, but still some minimal gains, I think that's a good ticking the box exercise as well. And Jamil, Abigail just talked about low-hanging fruit. Help us separate out what are the low-hanging fruit right now in EU-China relations and the existential high-hanging fruit issues. Yeah, I mean, I think Abigail's right. It was a ticking box exercise and maybe some very low-lying fruit were plucked, mostly around the fact that they even had a meeting. It's the first time in nearly five years that they've met face-to-face. Obviously, COVID got in the way, but also relations between the EU and China are not good. Um, they've gotten worse over recent years. I would say big things that, that matter from the Europeans' perspective are the, I think it's going to be 400 billion trade imbalance this year. If you just look at the last two years, the trade deficit has doubled. And this is a matter of great concern for a lot of Europeans. Such imbalances are just unsustainable. Not a great situation for European exporters who are, you know, in many, many areas still quite locked out of the Chinese market. It's fascinating to me just the optics around the meetings between Xi and uh, Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel. Charles Michel was welcomed first. He was brought in. Ursula von der Leyen, who the Beijing, the Communist Party leaders don't like at all because she talks tougher and more directly than other European politicians. She was 
optically somewhat sidelined and you had Joseph Burrell and uh, Charles Michel being subtly treated better than Ursula von der Leyen. Not quite Sophagate, but uh, somewhat in the same vein. I was going to say, how do you say Sophagate in Mandarin? Uh, you would say Shafaman. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's maybe get into some other vocabulary that we hear a lot in this discussion and that for non-experts might be a bit confusing. So the U.S. has talked about decoupling from China and Ursula von der Leyen has and others have said, no, actually, de-risking is the way to go. So Jamil, can you give us a bit of a translation there? Decoupling, the idea at least of decoupling is that uh, Chinese economy and the American, the West, other economies, Western economies would cease to be so reliant on each other. So your iPhone might not be made in China anymore. It might be made in India. You've heard different concepts. Uh, Janet Yellen, the um, Treasury Secretary in, in the US, has talked about the idea of friendshoring. So instead of reshoring, which is moving manufacturing capacity from China back into America, moving it to allies, friendly countries that are not China. So friendshoring rather than reshoring. Um, that's one way to decouple. What Ursula von der Leyen has done in coordination with others is tried to come up with something that sounds a little less harsh, a little less one-sided, the idea being that we would de-risk. So it's not like we're going to stop trading with China. They make all the toasters and all the T-shirts and all the whatever, iPhones, laptops, electric vehicles. We're not going to stop trading with China anymore, but we're going to make sure that we're not dependent on China in the same way we were at the start of the pandemic, for example, where nobody could buy PPE, personal protective equipment, because it was all made in China and China stopped it from being exported because it wanted to use it itself. Or pharmaceutical, upstream pharmaceutical component, you know, things that go into pharmaceuticals, things like rare earths, which go into batteries and weapons and all these things. So the idea being like, let's de-risk so we're not so reliant on China. The way you describe it, it sounds like kind of having cake and eating it too. I is either de-risking or decoupling really feasible? I mean, it's semantics. Honestly, I've, I have little time for this sort of thing. I also find it somewhat ridiculous that in a very insular and sort of self-important narcissistic way, Western politicians discuss the idea of should we or should we not decouple from China? I'm sorry, but the Communist Party of China under Xi Jinping for more than a decade has been decoupling with the West. It's just, it's a one-way thing that has been done by Xi, Xi Jinping's Communist Party. And I'm afraid that like Western countries, Western politicians just don't have that much say in it. Increasingly, if you're a Western company, uh, particularly Western American in particular, company in China, you are locked out of the market. You are, your people are arrested for trumped up national security crimes. I mean, it's, it's just harder and harder and harder to do business there if you're not a Communist Party controlled Chinese company. So that is the journalist's take. Abigail, can you help translate a bit for the diplomat's take um, and the politician's take on what point they're trying to get across with that terminology? Well, Luke, I think Jamil had the right assessment. And I think in diplomatic terms, she is completely consistent with the line she took in April. In April, she made a speech where she explained, we are going to de-risk and that's coming at you because you have not managed to address all our challenges that we have with you. I believe that we have to engage in de-risking. This means focusing on specific risks while appreciating that there is, of course, a large majority of goods and services or trade that is unrisky. We wish to solve the current issues through dialogue. So it's basically de-risking 
through diplomacy. So this is going to be the path forward. And that visit, I mean, the summit was the occasion to also say again to the Chinese, look, A, you are under-delivering on your promises by far. We get it. It's structural. It's not going to change. But then do not complain because we are going to take care of ourselves as well. And she said, we are going to manage risk. We are going to address dependencies and we are going to increase resilience. So there's a roadmap. And I think she went a step further, and that's probably very different from the previous summits. Usually you raise your concerns, but there is not a set of consequences. And I think she walked into that summit saying, now there will be consequences, an investigation on Chinese subsidies on electric vehicles. And I think that's very different. Yeah, and it was interesting, actually, in the press conference right after the summit, von der Leyen actually very explicitly said, we decoupled from Russia We don't want to decouple from China. But Beijing's role in the conflict that drove the EU's decoupling from Russia is also a major issue. There are concerns about Chinese sourced weapons ultimately making their way into into Russia. There are concerns about Chinese companies evading sanctions. And once again, we insisted that China should not supply military goods to Russia. And we reiterated how important it is that China helped to prevent Russia from circumventing sanctions. We have been clear since the beginning of the war that how China will position itself vis-à-vis the Russian aggression towards Ukraine, this will define also our relationship EU-China. We pay very detailed attention to how China is positioning itself. Abigail, do EU leaders have any leverage over China with regard to the war in Ukraine? Do they have leverage? I don't think there is much of leverage because the partnership between China and Russia is based first and foremost on the special relationship that Jinping has built with Putin. And in that sense, he is not going to let him lose that war. They are giving a try in basically pushing the Chinese to engage with the Ukrainians on basically his plan. And I think that may be the way forward. Jamil, from your perspective, how is Xi Jinping viewing the Western response, the fading interest that we're seeing in supporting Ukraine? How is this affecting his calculations, both about how to deal with Russia, but also Taiwan? I would say that the experience of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I don't personally believe it was something that the Chinese Communist Party was looking for or was cheering on. I think that they probably gave tacit approval to Vladimir Putin. He was in Beijing just with the launch of the Winter Olympics immediately before he decided to invade, fully invade Ukraine. How much he told Xi Jinping about that invasion is unclear. The corollary with Taiwan is there are some lessons I think that uh, Beijing has learned. One is if you're going to make a big invasion like this, make sure you win it really fast. That was the plan, I think, for Vladimir Putin and hasn't happened. It's much, much harder for China to invade Taiwan than it even was for Russia to invade Ukraine. Just because Taiwan's an island, you have to get troops across the water. Taiwan's well defended. Taiwan has security guarantees from the United States. So I'm certain that Chinese People's Liberation Army and top military leaders Xi Jinping They're looking at what's happening in Ukraine and they're looking at maybe wavering on on the part of the West and thinking, oh, maybe this is a great moment to do something about Taiwan. But I think they'd be quite 
careful about that because at the moment they probably wouldn't win. And how are domestic politics in China um, and the state of the Communist Party maybe driving thinking there right now? Yeah, who knows? The press in China, the domestic press is propaganda and nothing else. Foreign journalists, many, many of them, people I worked with um, in the 22 years I lived in China, most of them have been expelled from China. Their daily ability to cover anything properly is extremely limited. They're very heavily surveilled. They're very heavily controlled and where they can go and who they can talk to and what they can see. So it's very hard to know what's going on. It's clear, though, that there's some, as we've reported in a story um, this week, it's, it's clear there's some turmoil going on at sort of the very highest levels of the Communist Party because Xi Jinping has, in just recent months, removed his foreign minister, who was only appointed at the beginning of the year. He's removed his defense minister, who was only appointed at the beginning of the year. The leadership, all the top generals who controlled the what's called the rocket force, which is the nuclear part of the military that controls the nuclear weapons program, they were all removed and replaced. Yeah, it's, it's clear that there's some serious machinations going on at the very least. And Abigail, as we're recording this, we just saw the press conference from uh, von der Leyen and Michelle. But what are you going to be looking at over the next 24 to 48 hours to get a sense of how this summit went over in Beijing? We are going to be looking indeed at what the Chinese press is saying as regard to the summit. The question is now going to be, what do they make out of it? Is Europe still a friend and not a rival? How do they take into account what they have heard from the two EU leaders as regard our concerns? They also had concerns that they raised and that they are pretty vocal about. So the question is also, how are they going to take that into account? Are they going to come out of the summit and say, well, Europe also do not have anything to offer to us? And I'm going to close with some bleeding heart questions. There are consistent concerns about human rights in China in both Tibet and Xinjiang. And then also 2024, we're expecting a big European-wide election. There are big concerns about meddling in elections, whether it's through you know paranoia about TikTok or Russian disinformation. But with regards to potential human rights violations and democratic meddling by Beijing, do we have any sense that this was an issue in the summit? Human rights is always an issue, and it has to be. And now it has just spread across all areas of our bilateral relationships. So there is no way around it. But is that just, again, kind of box ticking, like, okay, we gave them a hard time, but mostly we talked about electric vehicles and uh, the trade deficit. So you never know what happened in the meeting, but when you listen to the press conference, there is more Taiwan than ever before. Jamil, looking ahead, what do you think the major issues for EU-China relations are going to be? I think that the election in Taiwan, presidential election in January, will be crucial. It's likely that the current party, which is seen as by Beijing as less friendly, more independence-minded, that party is likely to win again. And so, and also when you see the turmoil inside the top levels of the Chinese Communist Party, I think that we're going to be in for a bumpy ride in, in 2024. And the EU's interests around not getting flooded with electric cars from China, not getting flooded un by all sorts of exports from China, those issues are going to be small, I think, by comparison, but they're going to get worse from the perspective of Europe. So I, my prediction is that uh, Sino-EU ties are going to get worse and harder in 2024. All right. Well, on that optimistic note, we'll leave it there. Jamil, Abigail, thanks so much. Thanks, Pat. Thank you very much. And that's all for this episode of EU Confidential. 
Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast apps. You never miss an episode. You can also write to us directly with praise, comments, and ideas. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Thanks to Deanna Sturris, our senior audio producer, and Christina Gonzalez, our executive producer for audio and Politico of the Year for Europe. Hey, Christina, congratulations. Very well done. Totally deserved. Politico of the Year 2023. Congrats. We'll be back next week. See you then.